interconnectedness of all human beings and all living beings doesn't really have a center. The centers are everywhere. Everybody is the center of the entire interconnectedness of the world, mm. which means your history, your village, your town, your music, your background is the most important thing that we need to preserve and honor. You are listening to season three of the Music and Peacebuilding podcast, a professional development network at musicpeacebuilding.com, exploring intersections of peacebuilding, sacredness, community, creativity, and imagination through research and story. This is a two-episode series exploring dialogue and a human revolution of courage, wisdom, and compassion. In this first episode, we explore the legacy of Galtung, Ikeda, and Olivier Urbain's groundbreaking work in music and peacebuilding. Born in 1961 in Tournai, Belgium, Dr. Olivier Urbain obtained academic degrees in Belgium, the U.S., and the U.K., with PhDs in literature at USC and peace studies at the University of Bradford. Olivier Urbain is on the board of directors of the International Peace Research Association Foundation and is the founder and former convener of the Arts and Peace Commission of the International Peace Research Association. He currently serves as the director of the Men On Research Institute and is adjunct lecturer at Soka University, Japan, at the Graduate School of International Peace Studies, and is a visiting research professor at Queen's University, Belfast, in Northern Ireland. As a founding scholar who I have long admired, Urbane focuses on preventive peacebuilding and violence prevention at all levels. Today, he explores the potential of musicking to enhance conviviality and social skills, in Japanese high schools and other institutions and settings. I first asked Dr. Urbane about his role at the Men On Research Institute and Concert Association. So I'm the director of a music research institute called the Min On Music Research Institute in Japan. And it's pretty unique because it doesn't come from a university. It comes from a concert association. Mm -hmm. So Min On was established in 1963 as a concert association. They organize lots of concerts, invite people from all over the world to perform in Japan. They also have a music museum with fantastic collections of, of pianos and many other instruments. And they also organize a conductors competition and many of those uh, conductors then start uh, a new career worldwide uh, from from there and uh, after 50 years of organizing concerts with the the goal and intent of getting people to know each other better to get along better for, you know across uh, nationalities uh, across continents they thought, what, what else can we do after 50 years? And uh, why not establish a research institute? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that was in 2014. And so Min On means the music of the people. Mm. And it's kind of a flexible uh, translation, but it could be music of the people, by the people, and for the people. Yeah. 
Yeah, I want to journey back to this moment when you start to become a peace studies scholar. Um, so as I read your book, I understand that you were teaching modern languages, Ahsoka. And then you had this moment that seemed to be inspired by your wife, where you encountered Galtung and all was changed. Um, so <laughs> if we talk about transformation, I want to know about this moment of your transformation and what led you to be a peace study scholar. Oh, yes, that, that's a wonderful question. So I, I moved to Japan in 1991 and started to teach uh, French, English, uh, modern languages. Mm -hmm. And then in 1996, uh, a guest was invited uh, to teach on campus for two months. Kosuka University uh, has uh, always has lots of guests coming to campus. And that time it was uh, Johann Galtung, uh, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the founders of Peace Studies. And I was very busy establishing programs for students, so I, I didn't really have time to, to pay attention. But my, my wife was asked, was invited to, uh, to translate for him for two months. Mm -hmm. So here is, you know, one of the founders of Peace Studies uh, sharing very, very complicated theories in English and then in front of you, you have 1,300 students, Japanese students, who don't understand what he's saying. And my wife was in charge of translating everything. Wow. So, so I thought the least I can do is to at least attend the very first uh, class to support her. So I did attend. And after half an hour, I was hooked. Mm. <laughs> I found it absolutely fascinating. The very first uh, lesson, if you want, I attended. Galtung started to make little graphs on the board and showing that when people are in conflict, there are five different types of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And one can win, the other one can lose. That's one outcome, but both can decide to lose. That's, for example, war. Nobody wins in a war at the mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. It's a lose-lose outcome. Uh, you can compromise, uh, like, you know, you get half what you want, the others get half what they want. So far, so good. And then he showed what he calls the transcend point. The transcend point is um, almost impossible to explain, but it's a point where you get everything you wanted from, you know, trying to solve the conflict, but the other parties too. Both win. It's like a complete win-win. Now, of course, it sounds impossible, but it's uh, an ideal point, kind of a, a lighthouse where you believe it's going to happen, that it's possible for me to get everything and for you to get everything. And of course, uh, the only way to get there is really extensive and intense dialogues to reframe what you want, to understand what the other wants etc., etc. I'm not going to reproduce mm -hmm. the whole half hour. But I thought, oh, we can actually think about peace and peace building in a scientific way and, and use graphs and math, which, uh, you know, as a white Western European, that was really the only thing I could do at the time. So I went to see him in his office and basically I became a private student for, for about 10 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Galtung transformed peace studies with new conceptual models of violence and peace. Galtung's conflict triangle 
modeled the origins and interconnected types of violence as direct violence, structural violence, and cultural violence. In his book, Urbane cites a profound dialogue between Ikeda and Gautung, where he gently asks Gautung about connections between personal history and the origins of peace work. Ikeda, I have heard that seeing your beloved father, Dr. August Gautung, a former deputy mayor of Oslo and a physician taken away to a concentration camp by the Nazis when you were only 13 years old, motivated you to devote yourself to humanitarianism and peace. Gatung. My motivations were twofold. On the private level, I was influenced by the violent madness that afflicted Norway in general, and our own small family in particular, during World War II. I wanted to find out how all that horror might have been avoided, how the karma of all Europe might have been improved, and in honest, personal terms, how we could have kept father at home with us. So 10 years with like the founder of Peace Studies, I haven't had an opportunity to talk with somebody who's known Galtung. So, you know, as I came into contact with Galtung, I, you know, I came into contact with the triangle and mm-hmm. I think the aha moment for me there was, mm. I think the way in which he spoke about the, the importance of peace culture, um, mm-hmm. setting up, but yeah. So w- what, what rubbed off on you from all that time you spent with Galtung? Like what are some of the ways in which that time has affected you the deepest? Yes. You, you mentioned uh, triangles, um, I, I love triangles anyway, and mm-hmm. Galtung has lots of them that uh, help me, and I think has, has helped lots of people to flesh out what, what's going on. So for example, the, uh, the DSC triangle, the, the Direct Structural Cultural mm-hmm. Violence. Mm-hmm. So for Galtung, and, and I think for most people today, we understand that conflicts, disagreements, that, that's not the problem. Because life is complicated and we, we cannot all want the same thing uh, at the same time in perfect harmony. That, that's not realistic. So we, we have conflicts in our lives. But how do we handle them with or without violence? That's, that's the real question. Right? Mm-hmm. So the problem of, of peace building is violence, not conflict. And so that was already uh, a revelation at the time. But in addition, when we see people getting killed, people getting bombed, uh, people getting tortured, we want to stop that, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. It's called direct violence. We can see it, we can feel it, it's horrible, we want to stop it. But there is a a huge iceberg underneath, Mm -hmm. and Galtum calls it structural violence, which is one of his... Uh, greatest discoveries, if you want. I mean, it's always been there, so it's not a discovery, but uh, he put a, a, a label on it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's all the injustice that uh, people have to endure because of bad laws, uh, bad traditions, structures that are inadequate, invisible 
power structures that make it that, you know, um, a woman works 20 years exactly like a man, but her salary is going to be one third and she's not going to be promoted. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? You know, it's, it's called structural violence. And then there is another iceberg underneath that one. That's <laughs> and it's called, happened. that's the cultural violence. Cultural violence is, it happens in our heads. And that's where we think, well, it, it's totally okay for some people to have to go to jail for any little thing because I think they are inferior. Mm -hmm. That's in our head. And that's, mm -hmm. that's cultural violence. It's, you know, racism, sexism, uh, all kinds of discrimination is in our heads. But the problem is that once we get together and organize uh, our communities and our societies, those prejudices transform into rules mm -hmm. and habits and traditions. That's structural violence. And that pushes people to to suffer so much that at some point we have to, to stand up and revolt and rebel and, and use violence, mm -hmm. direct violence. So it's like a, a whole package. And I'm not very good at like combat sports, so eh, direct violence, I can't do much about it. I haven't mm -hmm. studied law or economics very well, so structural violence, I, I'd be pretty useless. But cultural violence, I felt I had something to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, wow, if uh, one fight we can pick, you know, uh, in the huge battle for, for a better world, maybe I can pick that one. I can look into... Where does cultural violence come from? Uh, prejudice, uh, privilege, all those things. Mm -hmm. And where is it in me first? Mm -hmm. And how can we change that for the better? And of course, music was a natural fit for that. In his chapter for Music and Conflict Transformation, Gautung writes, quote, Maybe there also has to be an element of disharmony in the harmony, of contradiction in the transformation of the conflict. Peace is life. Something needs to be left unresolved. Good art is like good peace, always challenging. We turn to a piece titled Far Away. This song is a result of a collaboration between the NGO Beyond Skin in Northern Ireland and Momri in Japan. The two co-producers are Darren Ferguson of Beyond Skin and Olivier Urbane of Menon. The song was created by students of two schools, Glen High in Ireland and the CNS Music School in Japan. Music by Yuta Hihara. Lyrics by students of Glen High at that time and music performed by students of the CNS Music School. And before we get to Ikeda, I want to just hear about the story of the Music and Conflict Transformation book. You know, I think I would want to note just how important that book has been. One of the very first books to look at this, that music has a role to play here. And I remember 
very on in my own formation, like picking up the book off one of the shelves in the library and opening it. So this looks interesting. And just the way in which I, it's the chapter on empathy that first hooked me, but the way in which that book changed me. And so I, I want to know the story of this book. Like how did, <laughs> where did you get this, this idea about maybe we should write this book on music and conflict transformation? Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, thank you for picking that book among mm -hmm. so many others mm -hmm. <laughs> on the shelf that day. So in 96, I decided to uh, learn directly from Gautung. And after three years, we met in, in Kyoto. Actually, the, the four of us, his wife, my wife, and, and the two of us, because our, both our wives are Japanese. So, of course, you know, a lot of uh, great communication there. Mm -hmm. And Gautung was establishing his own online university called Transcend Peace University. Hmm. And so we had a, a very long brunch. And in the conversation, he mentioned that he, he would love me to teach something, but something original, something nobody had done before, because colleagues of Gautung had already established a peace economics or peace sociology or even peace mathematics, uh, you know, peace ecology. Uh, so... Uh, immediately, I thought, well, I've never heard of, of you know, a course on music and, and peace. And he said, that's it. That's what you have to do. <laughs> so um, from there, I started to prepare the course, started to have some ideas on, on what would work. And little by little, I started to, to write uh, papers, publish articles, attend conferences, discuss with people. My my very first paper was called uh, Jazz and Social Justice. Mm. Uh, if you remember, there's this uh, fabulous series uh, by Ken Burns mm -hmm. about jazz. So I, I watched it very slowly and took notes. And there is so much material in, in there about uh, music and peace building, about how how jazz came came from the blues and how the blues was born at all and, and everything it means for the people who, you know, express themselves through the blues at the very beginning and what jazz has become today. This whole adventure was uh, my very first attempt to link music and, and peace building. So then in 2004, an institute actually I was not aware of. I knew, I knew the name Toda, but I didn't know there was a Toda Peace Institute. <laughs> and a friend of mine told me, well, you know, you're into music and in peace building. Why not apply for a, you know, funding for a project? Because the Todapi Peace Institute is organizing something about arts and, and, and peace. So I applied, it was accepted, and I had this uh, fabulous opportunity, thanks to the Todapi Peace Institute, of creating a, a team of, of about 10 people. And we all went to uh, the conference in Madrid in 2005. And so we were able to, to discuss and share for, for a few days in Madrid. And uh, each one decided to write uh, a very special chapter. Mm -hmm. And so the, the book, after a lot of work, uh, teamwork, uh, was published in, uh, in 2008. So as you mentioned... One of the writers was uh, Felicity Lawrence, who wrote on empathy, a really fantastic chapter. And you, then you have uh, C. 
Cynthia Cohen, very well known mm -hmm. also in the, the field of art and peace. Mm -hmm. uh, she is very careful about saying that music is universal. Everybody feels the same way with the same music. Well, maybe not at all. Maybe you have to be very careful about that. Yeah. You have Gautung himself wrote his first chapter ever on music. You have uh, Rick Palieri, who is a banjo player and singer, a disciple of Pete Seeger, who went to meet Pete and have an original interview of Pete for the book. So that's in his chapter. Right. Um, so I didn't know, but it was the very first academic book on, on the topic. And right after that, Music and Conflict, just cutting the mm -hmm. transformation part, Music and Conflict, was published by Ethnomusicologist, a really excellent book. And then from there, you have like literally hundreds of, of research projects. And now you have entire books, entire associations uh, on music and peace building. In Felicity Lawrence's profound chapter on empathy, she notes that within Eurocentric languages, the word empathy has a relatively young history. Introduced in 1873 as Einfühlung, this German word meant something different from sympathy, and was a word to describe the feeling into that often accompanied experiences with art. Lawrence draws upon Edith Stein's writings to caution that empathy can easily and falsely become a moment when we lose our sense of self to the arousal of a group. The Holocaust into which Stein perished is just such a moment, when the arousal of hatred within one group caused unthinkable acts within others. All right, well, let's lean into the story of uh, three humans that you talk about and that you've given so much of your thought and life to in, in working in peace education, peace advocacy. Samakaguchi, so Toda, and Ikeda. First, in the spirit of dialogue, I, I wanted to note to you like how beautifully I thought that you wrote about the way in which each one informed and changed the next. Like that in and of itself is like a history of dialogue about how each one is changing. I wondered if we could start with Makaguchi and his groundbreaking philosophies of education. I see that here's someone who built notions of free school lunches. Here's someone who believed in the latent potential within children and children's ability to be advocates for peace. So could you start with the story of how Makaguchi builds models of education as an act of building peace? So Makaguchi uh, was, was born in, in the 19th century. And by the time he was uh, in, his, in his 40s, he was a well-established uh, teacher and educator, not only uh, through his actions in the classroom. Makiguchi demonstrated his care for the inner potential of children in many ways, including a system of free lunches. He prepared and delivered lunches to students. But he was forced to change schools all the time because the authorities in Japan really didn't like that at all. They wanted to uh, create a strong Japan that could resist the uh, you know, invasions of, of the West. So Japan had to be ready not to be colonized. 
and you need discipline and all those things. So Makiguchi, inspired by uh, the, the type of teachings that, for example, John Dewey would you know, share at that time, he thought, well, education is useless if you don't really treasure the person in front of you and uh, really believe in the potential and give them the skills to develop their potential. That's what education is all about. So uh, he always got in trouble with the authorities for doing that, but nobody could ever change his mind. So then when he was around 49, uh, this young man came from Hokkaido, a young man, 20-year-old young man who also had experience teaching. And Toda, coming from Hokkaido, came to the big city, Tokyo, and he knew he needed uh, a mentor, an established uh, teacher uh, and, and theorist, um, pedagogist who could uh, help him. And he was able to, to meet Makiguchi and became his disciple. So then, then this dynamic of being together, mm. Makiguchi and Toda, then accelerated the emergence of, of this type of education, which is called uh, value-creating education. In Japanese, it's uh, soka, uh, means, you know, value-creating. And so it's, it's about the fact that if you believe in that type of education, you believe that people, each individual has the potential to become totally happy, fulfilled, have wonderful relationships, contribute to the world, and of course, contribute to a better world and contribute to peace. They don't need knowledge transfer from you. You don't have to throw any logic, uh, knowledge at, at them, but what you need to do as a teacher is to bring out their latent potential, and provide them with skills. Olivier Urbain spoke of value creation as a kind of constructive framing of what we experience. In Viktor Frankl's 1964 book Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl explores how our imaginations of future and purpose construct our well-being in the here and now. Frankl's thoughts and writings were formed during his time as a concentration camp survivor. Urbane reads from a quote by Frankel. Saying yes to life in spite of everything presupposes that life is potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable. And this in turn presupposes the human capacity to creatively turn life's negative aspects into something positive or constructive. In other words, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. So in other words, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. Uh, for me, that, that's a major part of, of value-creating education. Urbane shared a recent story from his classroom as a Ukrainian student made meaning of her studies and place in the wake of geopolitical violence. And then the, the girl from Ukraine uh, raised her hand and she said, this is how I survive. With everything that's happening in my country, to my family, to, to my friends, and you know, but I'm here in Japan, I'm alive, I can, I can study. But how can I not be totally um, out of it? And, and you know, how can I live? Well, because I've decided that um, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. 
and uh, based on that she's able to study to move forward and and to imagine a future that one day in the future she'll be able to do something uh, for her country for other countries for for people in general for for world peace uh, but you can imagine the, the kind of tremendous courage and hope it takes from from one young person going through that um, so all that uh, for me is value creation yeah hmm. yeah I think what I get from that is that there's it can be such a feeling of overwhelmed from the bigness of problems and I think that there's both in in this approach there is a there's a beauty in the smallness and the power of just one single person that's something that I heard time and time again from your book on Ikeda about the va the, the the difference that one person can make as 20th century Japan made ready for war it laid frameworks of cultural and structural violence the military government enacted the 1925 peace preservation law to end processes of dissent as it mobilized for war in 1943 this law was used to arrest and imprison Toda and Makiguchi for their refusal to conform to religious requirements. On January 8, 1945, Toda was informed that Makiguchi had passed away some two months prior in a separate prison cell. Toda was engaged in his own solitary struggle of survival and turned to the embrace of awakenings and revelations from the Lotus Sutra. Urbane writes, quote, Toda seemed to be free of fear for the rest of his life. This first revelation gave him tremendous courage to overcome all obstacles. It also made him aware of how precious life is, and of the importance of the dignity of each individual. It confirmed his attitude and conviction as an educator, that each human being is precious and worthy of respect. Urbane speaks of Toda's awakening to a sense of interconnectedness. And to make it simple, in my own interpretation, is that each human being can have many different missions and functions and roles and contributions, but one of them can be to wake up to the fact that we are all parts of the web of life, we all have life within, and we have a mission to share that with others and let them know that they also are part of the web of life and they have tremendous courage, wisdom, compassion inside of them. In a way, it sounds like value creation from India from uh, you know around 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was already there, right? And, and it was, of course, in other teachings. So then the, the two uh, very strong um, awakenings, revelations that Toda had was that the most important is life itself, the fact that we are alive, that we can breathe, and from there everything flows. And the fact that we each have a mission to make life better for others, not through charity, but by awakening them to the fact that their life is precious. After Toto was released from prison, he seemed to move with a clarity of purpose as he invested in the realization of Soko Gakkai. And on August 14, 1947, Toto met, quote, a frail young man of 19 suffering from tuberculosis. 
by the name of Daisaku Ikeda. Urbane rewinds the story to introduce Daisaku Ikeda. Ikeda was born in 1928, so uh, Japan was already on the way to a full-scale war. They had uh, already attacked and, and colonized uh, what is now Okinawa and, and Taiwan and Korea, and they were building their own little empire and growing empire. So Ikeda was born in, in the middle of that in 1928, and it was really not a good time to, to live. Uh, he had tuberculosis, but not many means to be taken care of properly. So he was suffering a lot from tuberculosis. He was, he was very weak, but still at age 14, he had to work in a factory, in an in a, uh, arms factory, because basically every kid had to do that in Japan. And then he saw that his brothers were sent to war. He had four uh, elder brothers and they were all sent to war, to war one after another. Mm-hmm. And especially his elder brother uh, was, was really close to him. His name was uh, Kichi. And then something happened that really changed Ikeda forever. That in July 1941, Kichi was allowed to come home and stay home for, for a few months. And he was changed and he was horrified and at some point he said very clearly and, and with with rage that what the japanese the atrocities the japanese are committing in china are absolutely horrible and unbearable so it was a big shock because you know the family thought well we're sending our sons to serve the country for to liberate asia from the evil westerners but the reality is completely different. So then that brother had to go back to war in 1942. And then no news from him. And then the war is over and in 1945. And then throughout 1946, the other brothers come back. Brother number one, two, three, still no Kichi. And then it's finally in 1947 that the news came that Kichi was killed. He had been killed in 1945 Mm -hmm. in Burma, which is now Myanmar. So uh, Ikeda saw his mother breaking down, becoming very old very quickly, and his father too. So this whole experience of uh, having to work at an early age, uh, having to do military drills all the time, being lied to by the entire country, realizing everything was, was a lie, was was a tremendous shock for the entire nation, including uh, Ikeda. So then we are in, now in 1961. Uh, Ikeda has adopted uh, the philosophy of uh, value creation uh, through through you know, a form of Buddhism, but from Makiguchi and Toda. And he visits Asia and he goes to India, you know where Buddhism started, and then he stops by Burma, Myanmar and definitely honors the memory of, of Kichi, his elder brother. And then on the plane from Myanmar to Thailand, he had this very clear idea, like, I don't want anybody's elder brother to be killed like this anymore. You know, we, ha- we really have to do something. That we, there's so much music and art and creativity in the world. Why don't we use that energy to make sure this kind of, of 
senseless killings and massacres never happen again. So when he landed in Thailand, it was it was Min On was built in his mind. <laughs> he was mm-hmm. already there, and he shared with uh, friends that he met there. You know, you know what? We really need to create to establish some kind of organization, some kind of institution that promotes friendship, understanding, cultural exchanges through music. And about two years later, that became Min On. The concertmaster of the NHK Symphony Orchestra, Shinazaki Fuminori, known as Maro, notes, Music is different. It is something you feel. It spreads among individuals. Music is about connecting people. I think this is the factor that can lead to world peace. This is the mission of musicians. This really could be the mission of music. We turn to a performance of Maro playing Mahler's Adagietto from Symphony No. 5 as an elegy to the loss of war and those affected by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami and those who have passed due to COVID-19. This recording is from the fourth episode of the Share Music Day series produced by the Men on Research Institute in 2022. The video is freely available on YouTube and provided with generous permission by the Men on Music Research Institute. find revolutions within legacies of dialogue and mentors, within the blooms of the lotus flower, finding the beauty and the potential within, holding disharmony within harmony as a creative energy to transform, to grow, bringing out the best versions of our community. Urbane's books, Daisaku Ikeda's Philosophy of Peace and Music and Conflict Transformation, are published by I.B. Taurus Press, an imprint of Bloomsbury Publishing. The website of the Men on Concert Association can be found at www.men-on.org. This is the Music and Peacebuilding Podcast hosted by Kevin Shorner Johnson at Elizabethtown College. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue our journey to explore revolutionary practices of dialogue.